Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Joseph and his family are finally reunited. And then Jacob describes his life to Pharaoh, and we take a look into the life of Jacob and contrast it with the life of his fathers and then also the life of Joseph. And then at the end, we will examine our own lives and how we might describe them so far to other people. Genesis 45 to 47, Lesson 10. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. So, on the last episode, we just went through the first eight verses of chapter 45, and Joseph went ahead and told his brothers who he was, and explained to them about how God had been with him, and God had had a plan all along, and that he wasn't angry with them. If you happen to miss that episode, you're going to want to go back and listen to it. We talked about suffering and how God is always with us and what he's doing when we're in the middle of things and how God can see the big picture and all of that. And there were a lot of supporting verses, but it was a heavier topic. This week, we're going to pick up in verse 9 of chapter 45. It says, Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all the glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. And do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to each man changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 
and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed, and he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. So at this time, Joseph was 39 years old. And we know this because he was 30 years old whenever he came into power in Egypt, and there were seven years of plenty. And then he just now says that there are five years left of the famine, which means there's been two years so far. So from the time that he came into rule in Egypt, it had been seven years of plenty and two years of famine, equaling nine years. So he's 39 years old when he reveals himself to his brothers. And he's very anxious to see his father. And knowing that there are five more years left of famine, he wants to take care of them. And so he explains to his brothers, he'll be moving them to Goshen. And this fulfills the promise that God told Abraham would happen before they inherited the promised land. So let's go back in Genesis 15, 13 through 16 and read what God told Abraham. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterwards. They shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your father in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so he's telling Abraham that his descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and that they won't return to the promised land until the fourth generation. So this is the beginning of that promise. This also goes on to say that they're going to serve the people there and that they'll be afflicted for 400 years and then that they'll come out. So we'll read about all of that later. But this is the beginning of what God told Abraham would happen, where his family would be strangers in a land that wasn't their own. And so he told his brothers to go get his dad and to hurry up, and he hugged them, and he cried. And when Pharaoh heard about it, Pharaoh told them that they could have the best of the land, not to worry about even bringing anything with them because they could have everything that they needed, which just again shows how much Pharaoh thought of Joseph. And so they were sent away with all the provisions that Pharaoh had given to them. And then Joseph gave them clothes, but he gave his brother Benjamin money and four extra things of clothes. So he's still showing his favor towards Benjamin, but none of the brothers seem jealous about this at all. Again, just confirming that they have changed. And at the end, when he sends them away, he says, See that you do not become troubled along the way. See that you do not quarrel along the way. Because he knows that they just found out something pretty shocking and they were responsible for what had happened to Joseph. And it was very possible that they were going to start blaming one another and fighting over what should have been done and who should have been told and all of the things that could have maybe been done differently. You know how we do whenever we get to the other side of things, we start saying, oh, we should have done it this way, should have done it that way, you should have done it this way, you should have done it that way. And so Joseph told them, don't do that. There's really no reason for that. I already explained to you how God was with me. God had a plan. Yes, you meant it for evil, but God took care of the whole thing. And now I'm here able to take care of y'all. So no reason for regrets, right? 
And honestly, what is the purpose of regret if we can't do anything about it? Now, it's great to feel sorry for things when we can do things about it. And we definitely always need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness of those sins so that we're not like those brothers where we're constantly feeling like we deserve punishment looking over our shoulder, right? We talked about that in one lesson. So we do need to confess our sins. But then at that point, we need to let God take them. We talked about that then, too. Whenever we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And he can wash us clean. And so there's no reason for us to dwell on the things that we've done wrong, dwell in the past, because it doesn't get us anywhere whenever we do that. There's no purpose in feeling guilty. Satan takes hold of things like that. And he uses those things to make us ineffective. And so what's done is done. God has a bright future planned for all of them now. They can see the future. Everything in the future looks good. And so there's no use regretting the past whenever your future looks good, especially then, right? Listen to what it says in Philippians 3, 13 through 14. This is Paul, and he's talking to the church in Philippi, and he says, Brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so he says, I know I'm not perfect, but one thing that I do is I forget the things that I've already messed up on. And I just press forward and I just try to do better. I reach forward for the things that are ahead of me and just do a better job. That's really all I can do. And that's really what God wants for us to do. Satan likes for us to dwell in the past because when we do that, we start to feel bad about ourselves and then we feel like we're not worthy and then we do not serve the Lord. God wants us to confess our sins to him and then move on, right? Move on, try to do better, be closer to him, all of that. And so that's what Joseph is encouraging them to do. He's telling them, do not sit here and dwell on the past. We have a bright future ahead of us. Let's dwell on that. Okay, so let's continue reading and see what happens after the brothers get to Jacob, beginning in verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he didn't believe them. But when they told him all of the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So I just wonder what this conversation was like, right? I mean, this would have been a reason for the brothers to have discussion on the way home. Like, how much are we going to tell that? Can we still just pretend that we thought he got eaten by a wild animal, but he didn't? Do we have to really tell him everything that was going on? I mean, that would be what I would be thinking. Obviously, that's not full confession or acknowledgement of your sins, but it would be so tempting. We know that eventually, if not initially, they did tell Jacob everything because after Jacob dies, we find out that the brothers go to Joseph and say, hey, dad didn't want you to be mad at us for the things that we did. And so why would their dad not want Joseph to be mad if he didn't know everything? So eventually they do tell him, if not initially. 
What we do know is that they started off making sure to say he's alive and he's ruler over Egypt. So they're giving him all the best parts first. If they did tell him, they're like, hey, he's alive and look how good he's doing. No reason to be sad about anything because not only is he alive, but he's doing well. And then it says Jacob's heart stood still. He cannot believe this, right? He cannot believe this. But they did tell him everything that Joseph said to them. So very possibly about how he had forgiven them for what they had done, which means they would have had to have told him what they did. But they also showed him all of the things that Joseph had sent for them. And how would they have gotten these things if their story wasn't true, right? Because, you know, the king of Egypt isn't going to send all this stuff to them otherwise. So Jacob is convinced and it says that his spirit is revived. So his heart is no longer standing still. He's revived. He's woken up. He's got it. And he says, okay, well, if my son's still alive, then I got to go see him before I die. Which, of course, right? Now, let's go ahead and read in chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Okay. So, if y'all will remember, Beersheba is just outside of the land of the Philistines. And this is the place that after Abraham went into the land of the Philistines and he lied to them and told them that Sarah was his sister, after they found out about this, they sent him out of the land and he settled in the land of Beersheba. And once the Philistines saw how well Abraham was doing and how God was with him, they were afraid of Abraham that if he ever got more powerful than them, they knew he would be able to overpower them because God was on his side. And so the king of that land came with the ruler of his army and asked Abraham, please make a treaty with us that we will always be peaceful with each other because I sent you away in peace. And I'm just asking that you will always be peaceful with me in return. So they made that treaty there in this land of Beersheba. And it is called Beersheba because that means the well of the oak. And so they were making a promise to one another at these wells there in Beersheba. And when he stops there to give sacrifices to God, God comes to him and says, I'm your God and you don't have to be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why would he be afraid to go to Egypt, do you think? Do you remember before Abraham lied to the Philistine king about Sarah? He had lied to the Egyptian king. He had gone down when there was famine in the land of Canaan before. He had gone to Egypt. And when he went to Egypt, he was afraid. And so he told the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. And when they found out, they also sent him away. And then when there was a famine in the land during his time, God told Isaac not to go to Egypt. He said, do not go down to the land of Egypt during this famine. Go to the land of the Philistines. And so Isaac also went to the land of the Philistines. 
and also told the lie to that king there during that time that his wife, Rebecca, was his sister. And when they found out about that, they kicked him out and he went to live in the land of Beersheba. So this is the land that Jacob grew up in. And then remember, Jacob had to flee the land that he grew up in because he lied to his father and said that he was Esau, right? He went and tricked Isaac and told Isaac that he was his firstborn son so that Isaac would give him the blessings of the firstborn. And Isaac was tricked and he gave him all of the blessings that he intended to give to Esau. And whenever Isaac and Esau found out that they had been tricked and betrayed, then Esau vowed to kill him. And Rebecca was so afraid for Jacob's life that she persuaded Isaac to let Jacob leave there and go find a wife in the land where she came from. And so Jacob had grown up here in Beersheba. And when he had to leave Beersheba, which was the first land that he had ever had to leave, God came to him and gave him the Abrahamic promise through his vision that we call Jacob's Ladder there in Bethel. And so both of the times that Jacob has had to leave where he's living, God has come to him and reassured him, hey, it's okay that you go down here because I'm still going to fulfill my promise through you. Jacob would have been worried about leaving the land of Canaan because he had been told all of his life about the Abrahamic promise, the promise that had been given to his grandpa that their family would one day inherit all of this land. And God himself had explained that promise to him there whenever he had left Beersheba the first time. So it would make sense that he would want to go back to where he had grown up and offer some sacrifices to God. And God would want to reassure him, hey, you're doing the right thing. You know how when you left Beersheba the first time and I told you I'm going to be with you, I'm still going to fulfill my promise that I gave to your grandfather and to your father through you? He would want to go back to that place and hear that same promise again and be reassured that this is what he was supposed to do. And so that's what God is doing. God is reassuring him again. It's fine to leave where you are and go to this new place because I'm going to be with you and I'm going to make you a great nation there and I will surely bring you out of there. And then this last part, he says, Joseph himself will put his hand on your eyes. That means Joseph will be there whenever you die. He will be there to close your eyes. And so this must have been a great comfort to Jacob because he had been told that he was supposed to inherit this land and all of a sudden he's leaving it. And he's probably going to die before he ever makes it back. And so he might be worried about leaving, but he also wants to see his son, Joseph. And so God is just reassuring him, yes, I want you to leave. This is part of the plan. Now let's go ahead and continue reading in verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants that he had brought with him to Egypt. Now, the rest of this chapter lists all of his sons and all of their children that he brought with them to Egypt. And so I'm not going to read that to you. If you happen to have bought the study, the people are listed in the chart at the back. 
At the top of the page, it says Jacob's children in order by number. And then on the bottom of the page, it says Israelite numbers. And so these children are listed there. And I'm not going to read all of their names, but I'll tell you what is on the list in case you do not have it. It says that Leah had 32 children of hers that went with them. Reuben had four sons. So Reuben and his four sons. Simeon and his six sons, Levi and his three sons, Judah, his three living sons and his two grandsons, Issachar and his four sons, Zebulun and his three sons, and then Leah's daughter Dinah. Then Leah's maidservant Zilpah, she had 16 of her descendants, Gad and his seven sons, And then Asher and his four sons, his one daughter, and his two grandsons. And then Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, had seven, Dan and his son, and Naphtali and his four sons. And then Rachel, remember, Joseph isn't there right now. And so Benjamin and his ten sons are the eleven that were Rachel's descendants. And so it says in verse 26, All the people who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 people in all. And so that totals, those people that I just named, that totals 66. Leah's sons, their sons, and their grandsons, and Dinah is 32. Zilpah's sons, their sons, one of their daughters, and two of their grandsons equals 16. Bilhah's son, Dan, and his son, and Naphtali and his four sons equal seven. And then Benjamin and his ten sons equal eleven. So thirty-two, sixteen, seven, and eleven equals sixty-six. If you're just listening to that, you probably don't care. But if you're looking at the chart, then that helps you just a little bit. Now, in verse 27, it says, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. So all the people of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. And so what they're saying is that we did not count Joseph and his two sons that were already born to him in Egypt in that number of 66. So now we're counting Joseph and his two sons, making it 69. And when you count Jacob also, that's 70 people in all of Jacob's family that will be living in Egypt. Okay? So let's continue reading in verse 28. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way of Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel and presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Now, before we get to the reunion of Joseph and his father, I want to ask you, why do you think that Judah is the one that Jacob sends ahead of him? You know, usually you would send your oldest, you know, to lead the way. That's just the way it would normally go. But Judah was his fourth son. So had the other three completely proven their leadership skills to be inept, Or had Judah just proven himself that much more trustworthy? What do you think? Think back as to who the first three sons are and what they did. The first son is Reuben. And if you will remember, 
Reuben slept with Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant after Rachel died, which is also the mother of two of his brothers. And so that doesn't show great judgment, right? He also is the one that pledged his two sons' lives for Benjamin's life instead of pledging himself. Remember, Judah put his own life on the line for Benjamin, and Reuben put his son's lives on the line. And so he very well may not have looked like the best leader. And then remember Simeon and Levi, whenever Dinah was defiled in the land of Shechem, Levi and Simeon got revenge on all the men of that city, even though only one man had defiled her. They killed all the men of the city, and they tricked them at that. And so they had shown their vengeance, and Jacob had to leave that land of Shechem, the only land that he had ever bought, because of what his sons had done. So they both also did not seem to have good decision-making skills. So it may have been that those three had just disqualified themselves. And also remember that Judah had been the one that pledged to keep Benjamin safe. And so he had been responsible for their journey from the beginning. So that would just make him the likely candidate to complete it. It may have just been that. And then again, I may be reading totally into it, and you may have just picked a kid. (laughs) Who knows? But it does seem like those first three kind of might have disqualified themselves. And Judah proved that he was able to bring all of them back safely from Egypt. So Jacob very well would have felt safe trusting him to take them all back to Egypt safely. Anyway. Judah does bring them all there safely, and Jacob and Joseph have a great reunion. Can't even imagine the emotions that both of them must have been feeling to see each other. And it says that they hugged and cried for a long while. And when they finally quit, then Jacob said, you know, I can die in peace now because I have seen your face. Before, remember, he had said that he would go down to the grave mourning his son. And now he's saying, I can go to the grave in peace because I've seen your face. Now, I keep saying, remember back when, and just for the sake of it not being boring and difficult whenever you're listening, I'm not quoting all of these references. But if you do have the written study, I do reference when Reuben did these things, whenever Simeon and Levi did these things, and then when Jacob says, I'm going to go down to the grave mourning my son. So if those things are important to you, then you can get the study. Now, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading what happens after they get to the land of Goshen. The rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even to now, both we and also our fathers. Then you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptian. So they weren't allowed to live in the land of Egypt among the Egyptians because their job was considered to be too lowly. But 
that's actually good because this is how God keeps them separate. Even though they are going to live in a land that they are strangers, they are still one cohesive unit. And so as they grow, they are able to grow together and still do things according to God's way because they're not living right there amongst all of these Egyptians who are worshiping other gods and keeping them from maybe doing things the way that God would ask for them to do and influencing them to do things the way that their gods would tell them to do. So this was God's divine providence also, that he keeps them separate. Because they're shepherds, they have to live in a separate land. Now let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said, Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph and said, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your fathers and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent man among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my flock. So Pharaoh honors his whole family by giving them the very best of the land and even allowing them to take care of his own livestock. So even though they weren't allowed to live among Pharaoh, it doesn't mean that Pharaoh wasn't honoring towards them. He definitely thought a lot of Joseph and he had his own animals and needed someone to take care of them. And as well as Joseph had done taking care of the land of Egypt, he was probably certain that his brothers would do well with his livestock. Now let's continue reading in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days and years of the life of my fathers in the land of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. So Jacob is 130 years old when he goes to Egypt, and it seems like he believes he's at the end of his life. And he told Pharaoh that he wasn't quite as old as his fathers were when they died, but his life had been really hard. It seems just odd to me. It's like, how old are you? And he doesn't just say, oh, I'm 130. He's like, my days haven't been many, but they sure have been hard. (laughs) I mean, that's where he's coming from, and this is a perfect stranger. now. He does think that he's dying, apparently, or that his days are short, but he does live 17 more years in the land of Egypt. He dies at the age of 147, and so that is younger than his grandpa, Abraham, who was 175, and his dad, Isaac, who was 180, but it may have been longer than he anticipated because it seems like he thinks he's not going to live even that long whenever he tells Pharaoh how old he is. But it just seems odd to me how he answered Pharaoh because Pharaoh just asked how old he was. And he doesn't just say, oh, I'm 130. He's like, well, 
I'm 130, and I know that isn't very old. Both my dad and my grandpa, they lived a lot longer than that. But, man, they've been hard days. It just seems odd to me that he would give all that information to a perfect stranger. And so I just started wondering, you know, how hard were his days? Why would he talk like that about his life? And if you think about it, he was constantly fighting with his brother whenever he was a child. And then the ultimate fight that he won but sent him away was the start, really, of his adult journey. And it was him having to leave home because of his own sin. And then he was deceived by his father-in-law several times, first by him giving him the wrong wife, and second, several times, apparently, in their business dealings. And so he ended up with two wives and two concubines and 12 sons. And these women were in constant competition with each other. The sons were jealous of one another. He had to worry about Esau. He wrestled with God. I mean, his life was definitely constant drama. And if you look back, it was filled with jealousy and hatred and revenge and deceit and fear and death and loss. But God had always been with him, right? And he continued to bless him and redeem all of those bad circumstances and protect him and fulfill his promises. So, yeah, he had had hard times, and I guess they were harder than Abraham's and Isaac's. But it just seems odd to me that that's how he would describe his life whenever he had had so much good. And when Joseph's life had also been so difficult. You know, think about Joseph's life, his entire adult life. He was sent away by no sin of his very own, right? And betrayed by the person who he was living with and lied about and put in prison. So Joseph would have, it seems, more of a reason to complain because a lot of the problems that Jacob had were brought upon by himself. And Joseph doesn't do that. You know, both of them had hard times and Joseph just seemed to make the most of his circumstances and Jacob just seemed ready to throw in the towel. You know, well, life's been hard. He just seems so much more pessimistic and depressed than Joseph. You know, Joseph is always optimistic and hopeful, looking towards the future and being able to see God's goodness through everything. All of the things that we talked about Joseph last week. So, I just want to end this lesson on that note for you. I want you to think, if someone asked you today about your life, what would you say? When you look back, do you see God's hand and maybe even some of his plan? Or do you just see heartache and pain? Are you able to make the most of your circumstances or do you just want to give up? God can be a source of our joy if we just look to him. That's what Joseph constantly was doing, right? He was constantly looking to God, constantly depending on God, constantly hoping and trusting in God. And that's why it seems, I think, that his life seemed to have so much joy. Listen to what it says in Psalm 16, 5 to 11. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my life. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, 
nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of my life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. So this psalm is just telling us that God is everything we need, and he has made the lines fall in pleasant places and given a good inheritance, right? And so if we look, we can see everything in God's timing and way. And God's given counsel and instruction and always been with him and kept him steady. And so he says his heart can be glad and rejoice. He's kept him from corruption and he's going to show him the path of life. And so we can also feel those things towards the Lord and feel joy in our lives, even if we're having difficult times. Listen to Psalm 34 and 5. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. And give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, if Jacob could have only said that, if he could have said, you know, weeping has come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God's anger has only been for a little bit, but he's had favor on me for all my life. I can praise him. That's what we should be able to say. We should be able to remind ourselves whenever times are hard, this is just for a moment. Joy is coming. We should be able to remember that and it help us to be joyful even in the moment. Listen to Psalm 126. This is six verses. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. How wonderful is this psalm. He says, It was like a dream when we came back from our captivity and we were just laughing and singing. You've done such great things for us, God. We sowed tears, but now we're reaping joy. Remember whenever you're sowing tears that God can let you reap joy. Listen to Lamentations 3. Lamentations, if you don't know, is the lamenting of Jeremiah. So the first part of this shows his anguish and the second part shows his hope. So listen to this. This is long, but it's worth reading. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he's turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He's aged my flesh and my skin and my broken bones and has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He's hedged me in so that I can't go out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He's been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He's turned aside my ways and tore me in pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and set me up as a target for his arrow. He's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness and made me drink wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity and said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. 
Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. He says, wait, but I recall something and I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man. Before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man, for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. So at the first he's talking about all the bad things that happened to him. And then he says, wait, but I remember that I called on you and you were there. You won't let me be consumed because your compassion is towards me. And you are faithful and I can have hope in you. And then he talks about how good and bad proceed from the mouth of the Lord. And how can we complain about having bad things happen to us when we're sinful people? That's the way Jacob, all of Jacob's sins, not all, but a lot of Jacob's sins were his own doing. And then he wants to complain about it and say, oh, woe is me. My life has been so hard. God has grace for that. God redeems. But we shouldn't be complaining whenever we deserve those things anyway. And so the rest of this chapter, he's saying we need to turn back to God. We need to remember that our hope is in him. He is the one that can help us. He always hears when I cry, but we have to actually repent of our sins. And so we don't want to be like that where we're complaining about our lives whenever God's mercies are sufficient and whenever we much of the time deserve the things that are going on in our lives anyway. Now look at Ecclesiastes 7, 13, and 14. This is the last one. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So he says, whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. And so whenever things are going good, be joyful. But whenever things are hard, consider that God is in all of it. He's appointed one day as well as the other day. God is there. He's taking care of us. He's taking care of all of the things that are going on in our lives. And so that is where we need to place our focus. Okay, so we're going to stop right there and we'll finish up chapter 47 next week and start chapter 48. Joseph's life just continues to remind us of God's providence, his love for us, his presence 
what he's capable of. And so I wanted to leave you with that today, that hopefully you can look at your life and yes, see difficult times, but also see joy and know that you have a reason to have joy because you have hope because God is with you. So leave me comments wherever you're listening. Leave me a five-star review. Email me if you'd like. My email address is Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. Subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode. And we will finish up this chapter next week. Thanks and have a good day.